Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Governor Tom Wolf announced last week that he has prostate cancer. The governor said his cancer was detected during a routine examination, and he described it as a very treatable form of prostate cancer. Often when someone well-known, like a governor, tells the public they have been diagnosed with an illness or condition, it gets attention. Such is the case with prostate cancer here in Pennsylvania. It is the topic of this segment of today's program. And we have a full house of guests, very knowledgeable on the topic, and uh, quite willing to answer your questions. Joining us, Christine Warner, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Prostate Cancer Coalition. Dr. Charles Renninger with Hematology and Oncology Consultants of Pennsylvania. Dr. Suzanne Merrill, a urologic oncologist with Penn State Cancer Institute. And retired Colonel James E. Williams, Jr., who is a prostate cancer survivor. Welcome all of you to the program today. Good to be with you, Scott. Thank you. Uh, let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Christine, what I want to start with you. Uh, the governor announced uh, last week that he's been diagnosed with prostate cancer, but he said it was a very treatable form of prostate cancer. What does that mean? Um, well, that means good news is that they caught it early. So the key with prostate cancer is early detection. When you catch it early and it hasn't left the prostate, um, you know, you get 99%, you know, cure rates on that. You catch it early, you remove the prostate, you do maybe some other therapies with that, and, and you're good to go. You know, you have side effects, of course, from treatment, but as far as the prostate cancer comes, um, early detection is key. Now, when you said you used the word cure, mm -hmm. And you don't often hear that, or a lot of times you don't hear that when you're talking about cancer. We're actually talking about wiping it out completely. Let me talk about that, Scott, right, because okay. uh, I was diagnosed 24 years ago. Uh, this is Colonel Williams, by the way. In 24 years ago because of this new test called PSA, screening test, which was a barometer that something was going on in my prostate and they needed to check further. But during that period of time, most men would go to the doctor when they're sick. I mean, when they're really sick. And when, when prostate cancer was diagnosed, it was usually metastatic. It means that it was in its advanced stages. Because, Had spread beyond the prostate. Yeah, because people don't understand asystematic diseases that you need to go to the doctor when you're well, when you're not, uh, not when you're sick. And the governor is a perfect example. He said some important points uh, in his uh, pr press conference last week. Not only that it was treatable, but he had gone in for an annual physical examination, not specifically for the prostate, and that it was dis discovered at that time. So he had no early warning signs that this uh, disease existed. And so the difference between then and now, and as you know, we have more than 13 million people in America who are cancer survivors, is that getting on top of these uh, diseases early on. Is the key, but something you just described, Colonel Williams, and I'm going to turn to, to Dr. Merle for this one. Um, this disease, I don't know if I'd say it's unusual, but what makes it difficult to detect is that it shows no symptoms in the, in the early stages, and just as Colonel Williams described, you could think you're perfectly healthy, and often you are diagnosed when you're in for a routine exam. Correct. That, that is correct, that typical early signs of prostate cancer are very silent, and that's why the PSA screening is extremely crucial 
um, to early detection and diagnosis. And I think where things have got gotten a little bit um, skewed recently because of the recommendations back in 2012 from the United States Preventive Service Task Force, which recommended against screening for all U.S. men, is that we are now maybe losing the ability to provide that early diagnosis and that discussion with the patient about what the options are at that point in time, which is crucial. Maybe not treatment is for all comers if it is a low-risk disease, but at least opens, you know, and for the conversation. Mm-hmm. Dr. Reniger, uh, the governor said uh, that he has a very treatable form. As Christine said, that's, that's good news. Is there an untreatable form? Yeah, absolutely there's an untreatable form. When prostate cancer has spread outside of the local area, uh, beyond the prostate, beyond the lymph nodes to some extent, gets into the bones where it primarily spreads to and potentially other soft tissue places, um, it it is not a curable disease. It is a treatable disease. We are doing better. Um, But if you look out five years, if you diagnose a man with prostate cancer, only about 30% of men are alive. Uh, So it is a very difficult disease to treat. Okay, wait a minute. Uh, Just clarify for me, because I want to make sure that uh, we're not shocking people. When when you're that 30% figure, who are these men that you're talking about? So these are men that have present with uh, uh, on presentation. They have metastatic disease okay. into All the right. bone. Okay, all right. That's the key. That's the key. That it has spread. That's the key. That it has spread, and that's the most common place for prostate cancer to spread. So, somebody might present with back pain or hip pain or or leg pain, difficulty emptying their bladder, initiating their stream, those can all be signs that you have evidence of a more advanced cancer. And, you know, as opposed to early stage disease where it's confined to the prostate, not not growing out into the local area, um, you know, when it's spread to the bones, we can't cure that. We can treat it. Um, with uh, hormonal therapies and and chemotherapies and and some newer therapies, but it's not a curable form of the disease. So it is something that you want to catch very early on. Yes. And, 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 you know, Colonel Williams, I want to ask, because we had talked, we we had this conversation just a few months ago. Yes. um, But the governor's diagnosis kind of brings attention to it again. But you have mentioned to me that, you know, one of the reasons that uh, it's not diagnosed, besides the fact that uh, there aren't a lot of symptoms, if any, in the early stages, is that preparation for the test, for the routine test, is something that uh, many men avoid. Uh, that's true. You know, we have a campaign, Don't Fear the Finger. Men um, <laughs> will avoid that. Yeah, Christine has this big purple finger over here, which that, is making me kind of nervous. Right. But, you and, know. And, that's, <laughs> and, and that's why I'm glad we have a female. Uh, <laughs> but, Scott, uh, here's the bottom line. Men should be as sensitive to their prostate as women are to their breasts. Uh, The phenomenon of the prostate is that in most men, the prostate grows during their lifetime. It becomes enlarged. And because of the enlargement, most of us during our lifetime will have some trouble with uh, urination. You might have bleeding. uh, You might have leaking, uh, incontinence, impotence. All this doesn't relate to prostate cancer, but it could. 
all the screening tests have flaws, and there's a big controversy mm -hmm. about high false positives and false negatives. So the, the good news is that uh, the, the screening test finds a prostate cancer early. Mm -hmm. The bad news is that it finds a prostate cancer early, and now what do we do with it? But the good news is also that this is a barometer, and men should know what that barometer is, and we talk about baseline numbers, so that you can track this, the status of your prostate health through your lifetime. And when you get my age, there's a tremendous quality of life problem in that population. You don't hear about it, but there is, because men are leaking, and they're bleeding, and they're depressed, and they're incontinent, and they're impotent, but they never discuss it. They don't discuss it with their loved ones. They don't discuss it with their doctors. Uh, and it's unfortunate that their quality of life is deteriorating when they're retired, worked hard all their life, and now having the, the time to enjoy it, they don't. So that's why these screening tests are important, so that you can maintain status on your prostate health. But again, let's talk about that preparation, because as you said, that is probably the most unpleasant part of it. Well, it could be, but ask, uh, I tell men to ask their wives what they go through each year. Uh, the, the DRE <laughs> is, a, is a, a great yeah. test because the physician can actually feel part of the prostate through the rectum wall. If you have a heart problem, the doctor can not place his or her hand over your heart and say, oh, you got a problem. But this five to 10 second test, which seems like five to 10 minutes, but it's only a five to 10 second test, actually can feel part of the prostate and see whether it's palatable, uh, whether it's enlarged, whether it uh, has, has some problem. Uh, and it's only one of a series of tests that the doctor gains information so that he can advise or she can advise you on the status of your prostate. Mm -hmm. Christine, you said that uh, at the press conference that Governor Wolf uh, had last week that there was a question about the test itself that mm -hmm. was inaccurate. It didn't surprise me, though, but go ahead, uh, describe it, if you will. Right, right. So uh, when the governor opened up uh, for questions at, at his press conference, one of the reporters asked um, if it was found during a ro routine colonoscopy. Um, and you know, that, and that's something that we hear often from men when we're at health fairs. They're like, oh, well, I don't need the DRE. I don't need this or that test because I've had... Um, yes, we have doctors in the room. <laughs> <laughs> because I just had my colonoscopy. They removed some polyps. You know, they saw the prostate on the way up, and it's fine. They said it looked just fine. Um, but the, the key is, you know, when you do the DRE, they're feeling the prostate. You can't see it in a colonoscopy. And, and it's, it's not a test for prostate cancer. So that's a big misconception out there is that men get their colonoscopy and they're like, well, he didn't say anything about my prostate, so I must be, must be good. Yeah, Scott, people will tell me that the, the, the worst part of the PSC, PSA screening is the preparation that you have to drink the night that's before. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. that's what I meant yeah. by that. Yeah, yeah. is that often, and by that, they're talking about the colon right. rather than, than the prostate. That's, that's yeah. right. Dr. Murrow, you okay? I mean, is there a patient okay that you have to rush out to? We are all okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. That's the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> is it? But no. you know what? That's nothing to be embarrassed about because it shows that you are on the ball and all ready to go. All the time, ready. We're on call, ready to go. Ready to go. So, Dr. Murrow, I, I like to bring in the basics when we talk about these things what does the prostate do what what does it you know what part does it play in a man's health I would say twofold. The biggest part actually is a structural function, mm. all right providing an anatomical physical part of your body 
that helps to keep the urine inside a men's bladder and actually helps to keep them continent. That's why one of the biggest risk factors with a lot of our treatments for prostate cancer is urinary leakage or a function of irritative voiding symptoms. I mean, mean, where actually where, you know, a man goes to the bathroom and sees that his underwear are wet or something like that? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Okay. Um, So if a man undergoes a radical prostatectomy for prostate cancer, we lose that structure, okay? It is completely removed from the body, and therefore we are only left with the external sphincter and the pelvic floor muscles to help them keep their urine in the bladder and not leaking out. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of the side effects of one of the um, treatments for prostate cancer. Other treatments such as radiation therapy, brachytherapy, play a role in potentially causing some irritative voiding symptoms. Um, from what the radiation can induce into the bladder. So a structure is, is one function of the prostate. The other is actually providing parts um, of, if you will, food, if you will, nutrients for the semen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Dr. Runner, do we know what causes uh, prostate cancer? Yeah, let, let, and let me just touch on just one thing a moment. You know, there was a recent study out. So the U.S. Preventative Task Force came out with its recommendation in, in 2012, in general mm-hmm. against prostate cancer screening. But a key point of that recommendation and others, including the American Cancer Society and the AUA, was that you have a discussion with your patient and an informed discussion. Mm-hmm. And there are decision tools to help you make your own personalized decision. Mayo Clinic, American Cancer Society, and, and what I find happening in my clinic when I see men is they don't even know what a PSA test is these days, okay? It is not being discussed, it is not being ordered, and I think that that's, in part, that's a system problem, right? Primary care provider has maybe 10 minutes to go see a patient. An informed discussion on prostate cancer screening, that takes an hour, wow. hour and a half patient. You would need a dedicated clinic to do that. So. I really want to encourage men to go to these sites, American Cancer Society, AUA, Mayo Clinic, and use some of these decision tools and ask their doctor about PSA screening and be more informed about making that choice. See, Chip, one of the problems with prostate cancer is there is no gold standard on treatment. And we catch it in the early stages, that's great. Uh, And we look at men who have been treated early Uh, And we look at their process 10 years down the pike, and they're pretty much the same regardless of the treatment they, they took. But it means that the patient, in many cases, has to make that decision. And that's why, like Chip said, it's so important that they do have an opportunity to sit down with their yeah. physician and you have You have discussion. to be an advocate for yourself. And, and I think to get back to your original question, what causes prostate cancer, and one of the reasons that, that PSA you know, screening maybe hasn't mm-hmm. shown as robust a benefit as we would like it to, is it's a diagnosis of older men. It's a diagnosis of age. If you look at autopsy series of 80-year-olds that have no clinical diagnosis of prostate cancer, you would probably detect about 60% of those men or so is having Mm -hmm. prostate cancer in their prostate. Other risk factors include uh, African Americans uh, at an increased uh, risk of developing prostate cancer, increased risk of dying from prostate cancer, um, and an increased risk of having high-grade prostate cancer. Those men with a strong family history, particularly those with a first-degree relative 
uh, and in particular a first-degree relative less than the age of 65 mm -hmm. with a diagnosis of prostate cancer, uh, all place somebody at an increased risk. There's other things that we think may play a role, we're not sure. Obviously, diet high in fruits and vegetables may be beneficial. Low in saturated fat and red meat intake you know, may help uh, prevent prostate cancer. Um, but those those are some of the more common things that we sort of think about. And the BRCA genes. Absolutely. Mutations. Which we have heard yeah. so much about right. over the last yeah. years, but mostly associated with breast cancer. Of, yes, right. of course. Mm -hmm. So what is, you know, explain that a little bit. Yeah, we're, we're seeing kind of this, as you would call it, um, just association, I guess, is the best word to use in that um, men who have that mutation or that mutation is found in their family history, we're seeing an increase in incidence in prostate cancer of men of that family kind of heritage and that gene mutation coming down. So we're definitely seeing it a role and it's making it um, onto the list of right. definitely increased risk factors. And so we're not saying that people need to go out and, and figure out if they have that gene mutation, but if it's determined in a family history from breast cancer, um, it should definitely be on their minds that yes, I probably need to start prostate cancer screening and probably early. So just so, to be just to be clear, I want mm -hmm. to make sure that uh, everyone understands. Are you saying, like for example, because most most of uh, people, most men are thinking, okay, well, if my father mm -hmm. or my grandfather or brother had prostate cancer, but you're also saying a mother who had the BRS, what is it to be? BRCA. BRCA uh -huh. mutation that they would be at bigger risk for prostate cancer too. As well. So asking, when we ask questions about right. family history, right. we ask both prostate cancer and breast cancer. And ovarian. And ovarian, ovarian. exactly. Yeah. And so, actually pancreatic even as well. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it doesn't necessarily completely correlate that if a family member has had breast, ovarian, or pancreatic, that they have these BRCA gene mutations. But it just raises a red flag in our, in our mind that maybe this patient, especially if they have multiple family members, Members right, right. need to be watched right. more closely and definitely maybe start screening at an earlier age. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're following up on Governor Tom Wolf announcing last week that he's been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And uh, talking about prostate cancer today, during this segment of the program, our guest, Christine Warner, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Prostate Cancer Coalition, Dr. Charles Renninger, who is with Hematology and Oncology Consultants of Pennsylvania, Dr. Suzanne Merrill, a urologic oncologist with Penn State Cancer Institute, and cancer survivor, prostate cancer survivor, retired Colonel James E. Williams, Jr. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Tara is in Harrisburg. Tara, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott, and good morning, members of the medical team. I just wanted to call and say thank you, thank you, thank you for doing the show, because I think there's something inherent um, in previous generations, like my father's generation and my late uncle's generation, that had a fear of going to the doctor. They think they're fine, they're okay. Unfortunately, with my late uncle, um, he was that type of man, did not go to the doctor, didn't get regular checkups, didn't get a colonoscopy, didn't get the, um, the, the finger test, as you like to call it. <laughs> um, and by the time he finally went to the doctor, he was in extreme pain, and the cancer that he had, it was not prostate, but it was another form of cancer, was already in stage four, and within a month he died. 
Contrast that with my father, who finally decided not to be stubborn anymore. He now has a regular PCP. He has a cardiologist. He's being monitored. He has outlived my grandfather by almost 20 years. And I think it's so important what all of you are doing to try and get that information out to men that, you know what, it's okay to get regular checkups. It's a good thing. You know, a few minutes of a bit of discomfort is so important because it can extend your life and it can extend your quality of life. So I just wanted to call in and say thank you from a personal standpoint of what all of you are doing out there to reach out to people, men in particular, to let them know that, hey, get on the phone, call your PCP, get these tests done, and it's it's so worth it. So thank you. Tara, thank you very much for your call, PCP, uh, primary care physician. But that has to be kind of a call that uh, you probably all would agree with, right? Yes, Scott. You know, uh, men take better care of their cars than their bodies. A lot of them do. Yeah, you're right. You know, we challenge men, you know, that, you know, every 30,000 miles or every 20,000 miles, they go get the oil changed and filter checked and tires checked, not because the car is sick but because it's good maintenance. And when you try to transfer that to say, well, you know, you need to go to see the doctor when you're well, not when you're sick, it just doesn't connect. Women understand, our best audience in the Prostate Cancer Coalition is women, not men. Because as women's bodies mature, they start going to the doctor, they have the children in our family, and they're usually the caregivers. So there's a strong or loose liaison with the medical field. Uh, We we doctors, we, Men, we only go to the doctor when we're sick, and I mean when we're really sick. Right, you're uh, right. And unfortunately, as you go older, waiting to you that time uh, leads to uh, serious problems. You know, Jim, I, oh, I, I, I just could echo that. You know, my, my dad was uh, an OBGYN and uh, never went to go see his regular uh, PCP, and and he actually your dad, a, who was a doctor, never a, went. a doctor, yeah. correct? It's worst and patients, yeah. worst <laughs> patients, right? Um, and. Uh, he uh, he had been in the Navy for some years, and uh, he decided he was going to go uh, back into the reserves toward the tail end of his career. And uh, the only reason he got diagnosed with prostate cancer is because the Navy mm-hmm. does a finger a finger wag and mm-hmm. a PSA on just about everybody. And uh, tell, he had a, tell me about it. A PSA that was <laughs> that was elevated and, and diagnosed with prostate cancer and. Unfortunately, he passed from that disease five wow. years later, uh, which is why I'm passionate, uh, you know, about this. But I just think it's, it speaks to that fact that, 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 that men need to be aware of this. They need to go see their PCPs and, and their wives, their girlfriends, their their kids. They, they, they need to help, you know, advocate for that. Yeah. And I think that's an important point about patient advocacy themselves because, again, based on those 2012 recommendations, okay, from the United Which States. Which I want to wonder about. What did they, what were they thinking? I don't quite understand that. Well, interestingly, they're in 2017, they're actually coming out. They have to every so often look at the data again and revise. And in 2017, they're up for revision of the prostate okay. cancer right. screening right. recommendations. So we'll see, because there's been a lot of controversy over the studies that they base their recommendations on. Yes. So, um, but what we've seen since 2012 is a drop in PSA screening nationwide with almost a 50% drop specifically in primary care physicians, as well as a drop in detecting high-risk prostate cancers, the ones that we all agree should be treated. So it's not just the low-risk disease that 
again, these screening recommendations are kind of based on in regards to we were over-diagnosing, therefore over-treating. Um, we are now missing yeah. these high-risk patients. A 50% drop. Yeah, re recent study pointed, pointed mm -hmm. to that, um, that, that really in, in terms of PSA screening, there has not really been a change in screening amongst urologists. It's relatively held the same mm -hmm. since that recommendation. In primary care uh, clinics, it's down to about 16% of men were screened with PSA. Uh, since that recommendation has come out. So it's dropped dramatically. Well, well let's hope that, uh, at least in this area, that that changes people listening to this show today. Hey, Christine, I have to say that uh, Colonel Williams may have come up with a, a campaign for you. Mm -hmm. uh, you get your oil changed every 3,000 miles. <laughs> you know, just like when they tell you to change the battery in the fire alarm, in the mm -hmm. smoke alarm when uh, at, you change the clocks. You get your oil changed, you go and get a screening. Now, that would end up being, you know, more than twice a year, but still. <laughs> Scott, I think that's the right timing. You know, the clocks uh, go forward here that's uh, right. in a week or that's so. That's right. So we can tie all kinds of things right. to it. Yeah. Let's go to uh, Bob in York. Bob, you're on the air. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, question to the, uh, to the general group there. I'm a 62-year-old male. Um, I have uh, been getting annual physicals uh, regularly, routinely, since I turned uh, 50. Um, over the years, I've had my PSA numbers bounce up and down uh, in an acceptable range. Uh, several years ago, had them uh, spike. Um, doctor uh, suggested, recommended strongly, that I undergo a biopsy. Um, and for the listening audience, that's having... Uh, a procedure where they take multiple <clears throat> micro samples of your prostate to uh, determine if uh, there's any cancer cells uh, in the in the mix. Uh, the procedure um, was not the best experience that I've ever had, um, and there and the results of it were uh, inconclusive. Uh, back several years more. You know, my PSA is up and down, up and down within that acceptable range. Uh, recently, uh, another spike in it. Doctor is recommending again uh, that I undergo a biopsy. Uh, not not thrilled about it, but I'm biting the bullet and, and going forward. Uh, I guess my, my question is, uh, if it comes back inconclusive again, uh, you know, where do I go from here? Okay. Hey, I'm going to keep you on the line, Bob, in case they have a question for you. But, uh, yeah, obviously we can't diagnose uh, individual cases, but still in general terms about uh, a biopsy. Sure. So this is not an uncommon problem to have these PSA fluctuations. They're high. Digital rectal exam may be normal. Recommend a biopsy if we're con continuing to see a, you know, elevated PSA, maybe a rise in PSA, as biopsies is still our gold standard for diagnosis of prostate cancer. And when we get either a negative biopsy or maybe we're on the second round of a negative biopsy, what we recommend um, as a possibility to do is to undergo an MRI of the prostate. That we have really advanced our technology in understanding um, and getting great tissue characteristics with the use of MRI, and that can provide a nice global landscape. And where that helps is picking up 
high-risk or aggressive prostate cancer. MRI is not good for picking up low-risk prostate cancer. So it cannot completely um, say that you do not have prostate cancer, but what it could do is say you don't have aggressive prostate cancer. Maybe now we can continue to follow the PSA and, again, come to these decision points along the way in the future. Do we need to do another biopsy in a year or maybe another, maybe an MRI, et cetera? But at least can hopefully eliminate the real worry, which is the presence of aggressive prostate cancer that biopsy might not pick up, which we know biopsy has about a 25% false negative rate. Bob, do you have any follow-up questions? Um, why not uh, go straight for the MRI as opposed to going through the biopsy procedure again? Yeah, and that just, is, I think, is based on the discussion that you would have with your provider and the resources that uh, he or she may have around. But um, with my patients, that is up for discussion after uh, a negative biopsy, and we're continuing to have uh, and see that rise uh, and elevation of PSA above normal. Okay, Bob, thank you very much for your call. Let's take another call here from, let's see, we have Stephen, who had prostate cancer. Stephen, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing? Good. We're doing well. Good. Uh, I had prostate cancer, first diagnosed probably about seven years ago. Uh, my PSA went from two, jumped up to four, jumped up to six. My urologist says, Steve, let's get a biopsy. So... I got a biopsy out of 21 uh, biopsies. One came back positive and it was just in the lobe. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, what, what do you think? And he said, oh, let's go. Let's do it another one, another year. So after four years, same thing came up, except for the last biopsy. It started to spread out. And he says, well, Steve, I think it's about time. So I went ahead, uh, he gave me some maneuvers, cable maneuvers, to practice uh, for about two or three months before I had the uh, radical prostatectomy, uh, robotic uh, prostatectomy. Uh, things went extremely well. I was out of the hospital the next day, had a catheter in place for a week, took that out, and there was a little bit of incontinence, but not a lot, and now I'm fine. So that's well, just my experience. All right. Well, thank you very much for your call, and I'm glad to hear that uh, things turned out well. You know, I'm glad to hear that we we have uh, people who are calling in and uh, you know, kind of relating their experiences mm -hmm. because it does show that uh, everyone's different, but mm -hmm, yet right. there are a lot of similarities uh, as well. And, and, it, it, and, and it also it. shows yeah. the improvement in uh, the diagnosis and treatment since 24 years ago when right, I was right. originally. That was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. doctor talked about MRI, which gives a little better profile than the ultrasound. Uh, there's a lot of secondary screening now at each step to see mm -hmm. whether we need to go to the next step. Uh, so things have improved as we as we diagnose and treat this this disease. You know, I think I think, I think things have improved in, in, in several ways. You know, 
probably, you know, 25 years ago, that person would have had a radical prostatectomy mm -hmm. or radiation. Uh, today, we know that there are certain people that should undergo active surveillance and not receive uh, uh, treatment. So I, I, I certainly think that, you know, there are people that we can watch and wait. And then I also, uh, I think a great thing that he pointed out is there's been improvements in both radiation technique and improvements in prostatectomy, you know, nerve mm -hmm. sparing and, and robotic, and you could speak, you know, more to that. But I certainly think men are doing better from a post-operative, you know, standpoint than they ever have with regard to prostatectomy. Right. You know, we, we talked, go ahead, we're gonna say something. I was gonna say a nice thing that we're learning with, um, as we get more data with patients being on active surveillance is that it is not a loss in terms of overall survival for them, especially if we see in this gentleman who his prostate cancer had progressed. So it does require careful monitoring and watching. But for those patients that then move on to definitive treatment, we are not seeing a drop in their overall outcomes as compared to patients who went on to primary definitive treatment. And I think that should be very reassuring to the yeah. patients out there. Um, you know, we talked about the, some of the causes, and, you know, from what you described, Dr. Reiniger, that those could be almost the same causes of any cancer. Correct. Right mm. yeah. uh, and you also touched on some things you could do, diet, exercise, and those are pretty common, too, not just for avoiding cancer, but uh, just to say, stay in uh, good health. Uh, to begin with, but is there anything in particular if you want to avoid this disease that men could do? Yeah, that's, that's a hard question to answer uh, in a sense. Um, you know, there's been some studies looking at, uh, uh, you know, hormonal prevention uh, with some drugs uh, that work to uh, inhibit the, the production of more potent test, uh, forms of testosterone in the prostate, notably finasteride and, and dutasteride. Um, the problems uh, with those drugs is they seem to prevent more of the low-grade cancers and don't, maybe don't do as good a job with the high-grade cancers. There can be some uh, uh, symptoms with them that can be undesirable with regard to decreased libido and things like that. And um, in, in general, we've not seen widespread adoption of those types mm -hmm. of prevention uh, uh, strategies. Um, there is some emerging data that not just with prostate cancer, but also with colon and breast cancer, that um, uh, body mass index, metabolic syndrome, uh, probably related to uh, IGF-1 uh, pathways, uh, increase the risk for multiple kinds of cancer, and that would include prostate and, and colon and, and breast. Mm -hmm. So exercising, maintaining ideal body weight, I mean, those are things that I think, you know, all of us could do that, that would benefit us, but certainly would be true for prostate cancer as well. There's some data with regard to vitamin D and having normal levels of uh, vitamin D. There might be, uh, uh, you know, uh, some benefit there with regard to primary prevention of prostate cancer. At the very least, you're, you're helping your bones, so uh, that's a good thing. Um, so those are the things that I would kind of touch yeah, upon. Yeah, Scott, and, and also one thing we haven't talked about is just the aging process. And sometimes I say prostate cancer gets a bad name because some of the so-called side effects and indicators are not because of prostate cancer, but are because of aging. And that's why it's more important to have the regular physical examination and be screened so that the professionals can distinguish one from the other. Uh, as Chip has said, uh, as we grow older, I see so many men who have worked hard all their lives, saved their money, educated their kids, retire, and die. Yeah. Uh, because their health behavior has not been good, they don't exercise, they don't eat well, 
and because of lack of activity, uh, they start having a poor quality of life. And so whether we're talking about prostate cancer or other things, as we push our men's health initiative, all these things are important. Just a couple other questions. And uh, Dr. Merrill, I want to get back to you uh, with the BRCA uh, test. And you said is it's it's not I don't know whether and I don't want to put words in your mouth. Did you say that it's not worth getting tested ahead of time for that for that mutation? Because we do know that the technology is there today that you could find out at a very early age whether you have that mutation. Are you saying that men should not get tested for BRCA ahead of time? Not flat outright. Not walk in and say, make an appointment, say, I need this because my father had prostate cancer or my mother had breast cancer. Right. I think if we get at that through the history that we would have with the patient and understand from their family lineage, if there seems to be a very strong concordance of mother, aunt, sister having the breast or ovarian or pancreatic cancers in, in, in either gender, then there might raise some suspicion. Yeah. And to tell you the truth, probably my next step as a urologist would be then to send the patient actually to probably start the PSA screening, of course, but to send that patient to a genetic uh, counselor, exactly, um, to then kind of weigh the risks and benefits, right. really talk to them about the implications of having gene testing, right? That opens another whole Pandora's it box. Does. Right. You may find things beyond Correct. prostate cancer. Yeah. So I think for us, it's just a red flag in getting that family history, which is so crucial, a risk factor in and of itself, but then it spreads on to other cancers that could be associated, and namely with this gene mutation, and then getting them to the appropriate provider to to have those discussions. I, I think it's going to become more and more of an issue. You know, uh, the the ability to, to sequence your genome and and, and, and look for right. look for abnormal genes. I mean, it used to cost thousands and thousands of dollars. You can now call, and I'm not advocating that anyone right. do this, right. but you can call 23andMe and get a little yes. test kit sent mm -hmm. to you. And uh, it costs, I think, $89. And, and you have a good idea, you know, about a lot of the potential, you know, mutations you could have, diseases you're at risk for. Um, so this is going to be a big issue going forward. You know, more and more people are going to be having access to that type of information. And we're going to need to figure out, you know, how do, how do we manage that information? How do we manage that patient? And, and there is no randomized or prospective data, you know, at this point in time because the technology is, is progressing so much quicker than our ability to carry out those, those trials. Mm -hmm. so. Colonel Williams, I'm going to let you have the last line. Advice that you would give... Uh, <laughs> to those listening today? Well, I my message goes out to women. Uh, we have a program called a Checkmate that when they have their annual physical examination that they make one for their male mate or at least have the discussion. It's so important in 2015 that we stay ahead of these things and so many men have survived this disease because they did go to the doctor as well as take care of their car. Uh, and so we encourage all men uh, at any age that annual physical examinations is the key to a long, good life with a good quality of life.
I want to thank all four of you for being with us today. A timely conversation, and uh, let's hope that uh, you know that uh, there are those who heard us today and said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to do that. And we'll get to the women too. Hey, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. For more on prostate cancer, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care, check out WITF Transforming Health online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and Wellspan Health. All right, shifting gears here. It's part of everyday life here in central Pennsylvania, especially in Lancaster, Lebanon, and Berks counties. But visitors notice the region's Pennsylvania Dutch dialect pretty quickly. And I'm not just referring to the Amish, who sometimes communicate in non-English Pennsylvania Dutch or Pennsylvania German. Our guest today is Mark Loudon, author of the new book, Pennsylvania Dutch, the Story of an American Language. He is professor of Germanic linguistics at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Loudon, Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Scott. And if you have a question in the next few minutes or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, I have to ask, what prompted you to write the book? Well, this is a sort of personal involvement that I've had for over 30 years now. Um, I've been, actually, 31 years ago, I started attending Old Order Amish Church Services, um, I had already been involved in uh, the study of German and uh, was training to be uh, a linguist at, at Cornell University. And I uh, was looking for a church, actually, at the time, and then uh, met some Amish folks, started going to church. Their number one language among themselves is Pennsylvania Dutch, and um, got immersed in it and then uh, ended up um, devoting pretty much my entire professional career to Pennsylvania Dutch studies. And you are fluent in the language, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the difference between a person who is Pennsylvania Dutch and someone who has German ancestry? Well, the Pennsylvania Dutch, uh, people that are of Pennsylvania Dutch background trace their ancestry to the 18th century, to immigration of German speakers from Central Europe before the American Revolution. And there was only about somewhere in the neighborhood of 81,000 folks that came over during that time. Um, you contrast that with um, several million, probably seven or eight million Germans that came starting in the early 19th century and into the 20th century. So the vast majority of Americans that are of German descent um, are actually not of Pennsylvania Dutch background. And the Pennsylvania Dutch are really tra- uh, trace their ancestry back to those 81,000 folks that came before the revolution. But you know what? We haven't had uh, a wholesale... How do I put this? There haven't been a whole lot of immigrants since that late uh, 18th century. But you say at the same time that Pennsylvania Dutch is a booming language, despite a lack of refreshment from a new wave of immigrants. How is that possible? Well, basically natural increase. Um, Even though it was a very, very small, relatively speaking, founder population, um, the language has hung on very tenaciously among the most conservative uh, Anabaptist groups, na- notably the Old Order Amish and most of the horse and buggy driving Old Order Mennonites. And their populations are doubling about every 20 years through very high birth rates and uh, low attrition. So it's kind of like money in the bank. You know, it can double $5, makes $10, but it's not very much initially. But then when you've got, say, 300,000, which is the rough uh, estimate of the uh, population of Old Order Amish in North America, 
you double that in 20 years, and you're looking at you know over half a million speakers, and that's pretty dramatic growth for any language, even outside of North America. But yet, uh, it's it seems as though, and you write about this that. It's often not used in uh, old Amish homes or old uh, Mennonite uh, homes, except for those who are older in the family. Is that correct? No, actually, um, when, when, when we're speaking of old order Amish, we're talking about the sort of most familiar group of, of Amish sectarians, the horse and buggy driving Amish. And so it's not older old Amish people or old Amish people. It's actually old order Amish. So that's basically essentially all Amish people. And that's the language that's spoken not only by elderly people, but but kids on the playground. Even even as as we're speaking right now, um, Pennsylvania Dutch is being actively used by by children um, as well as older folks. Oh, okay. Well, then that's that's a bit of a surprise. We have Fanny from Harrisburg, and she has a story to tell. Fanny, you're on the air. Yes. Oh, I'm now on the air. Yes, you are. He's still talking. Well, that's because you uh, we have a delay system, and you're hearing the radio. Listen to your telephone. Should I turn the radio off? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because that, that is weird when I hear myself in the background like that. Okay. okay All right. I'm, I'm, I'm on. Okay. All right. Well, you're, if you're listening to the phone, go ahead. What's your question or experience you'd like to relate? Okay. I am Fanny Stolzis-Ellenberg from Harrisburg, and I left the Amish when I was 30. I'm now 66. And I really enjoy talking, Pennsylvania Dutch, to the people at the market, the Amish people. And wherever I meet people at the stores, I, I hear them talking. I'll just walk up to them and speak in Pennsylvania Dutch to them. And they're surprised to, you know, to hear me because I don't look Amish at all anymore. So um, I would love to know more about this professor who is uh, fluent in the language, in the dialect, and uh, the fact that he's writing a book and stuff about our book. Well, give us an example. Anyway. Give us an example, uh, Fanny. What, what question in Pennsylvania Dutch would you have for uh, <laughs> for for, uh, for Doctor Loudon? Okay. Make, make it a quick uh, question, though. Yeah, he said me off. Said said a considerate the Dutch salvagrat. So, Fanny, what did you ask, and Dr. Loudon, how did you answer? I asked him, is he as Dutch as sauerkraut? <laughs> and I responded, and I he hope said, I. He said, yes, he is as Dutch as sauerkraut, but he had an accent different from Yamish people. Ah, okay. Thank you very much for your for your call. She mentioned that you had an accent. Uh, is there a uh, uh, you know different dialect in Wisconsin than uh, there is here in Pennsylvania? Um, basically, among Amish varieties of Pennsylvania Dutch, there are two major dialects, and the one that I was just using was the Midwestern dialect, which is basically like Ohio and points west. So mm. it's a little bit different from Lancaster. Mm. So, you know, I, I remember one of the famous stories, uh, and this goes back to the American Revolution, when George Washington crossed the Delaware with his troops and uh, the Hessians uh, were asleep and they were surprised that the way that uh, the Continental Army's troops were able to communicate with the German Hessians was by using Pennsylvania Dutch. How has the language uh, changed since then, or has it? Well, the language has changed. Um, we have documents of the earliest Pennsylvania Dutch going back to somewhere around 1800 uh, from German language newspapers from Pennsylvania. And if you were to take those texts and read them out loud to modern speakers, they would be able to understand them pretty well. Um, so the language has, has changed in the same way that, say, American English has changed since about 1800. Um, 
but uh, not so dramatically that it would be difficult for people to go back in time and understand what the, what the earlier folks said. And there are a couple terms, and I think we probably know one, but I want to get the other. Fancy Dutch complained to, uh, compared to plain people. Yes. That's the uh, major kind of social uh, distinction among Pennsylvania Dutch folks going back to the very beginnings. Um, the vast majority of those 81,000 immigrants that came over were affiliated with uh, mainstream Protestant churches, so predominantly Lutheran and German Reformed churches. And then about uh, 5% were associated with the so-called Anabaptist and Pietist sects, notably Mennonites and Amish and related groups. And so the name Fancy Dutch uh, was applied in English to describe the, the non-sectarians, the folks who were associated with Lutheran and Reformed churches, uh, building on Quaker terminology, sort of distinguishing between plain, plain dressing, plain, plain clothes, uh, and uh, and more fancier, more assimilated uh, Christians. What about the dialect for the English speakers in this region? As I mentioned in my introduction, uh, there are so many people who are not natives of central Pennsylvania that uh, when they do come to this region, they hear some things that uh, they, they don't quite, they've never heard before. In fact, I just saw one in the Lancaster newspaper last week. There was someone writing about the term of a use a while, how so many central Pennsylvanians will say, uh, could uh, could I help you a while? Or would you like some tea a while? Uh, you know, we have so many dialects like here in central Pennsylvania, English speakers who have taken some of the Pennsylvania Dutch language, or have they? What is the dialect? That's absolutely correct. Basically, central PA English and, and other varieties spoken in the southeastern part of the state especially have been to a certain extent, we say Dutchified, in other words, influenced by Pennsylvania Dutch through bilingualism and just picking things up from, from their Pennsylvania Dutch-speaking neighbors. And so, uh, you know, that's true for, for other varieties of American English where there have been sizable numbers of people speaking languages other than English. So central Pennsylvania definitely has, has, uh, has the imprint of Pennsylvania Dutch on it. Do you recognize uh, when you come to this region or you're speaking to someone from this region who is speaking English and there's some terminology they use, do you have a favorite? Um, I'd say probably out in the light <laughs> is the most distinctive. That's something that's, that's clearly sort of a, a, um, associated with the Pennsylvania Dutch country, even though it's actually archaic English, but it's definitely associated with the Dutch country. Then another thing is what for a book is that instead of what kind of a book is that? That's a direct translation from Pennsylvania Dutch, Fossil and Buchestel. You know, you just those two, I've heard those two things that you just mentioned so many times, especially in the southeastern part of the state, Berks, Lebanon, and, and Lancaster counties. Well, I, I have to tell you, we only have about a minute or so left, and I, I'd like to have you on again to, to, to talk about this because it is so interesting and there's so many things that we didn't uh, get to. One thing I did want to ask about, though, you write about certain groups of Pennsylvania Dutch fearing being Germanized. What does that mean? Well, basically, the Pennsylvania Dutch always saw themselves as much more American than Europe, associated with European Germans. And as later waves of immigration came from Germany, they really brought with them a kind of different outlook and attitude uh, to a number of things, including language that the Pennsylvania Dutch really just did not share. And so the Pennsylvania Dutch, even though they're, they're not 
English monolingual speakers historically, they are definitely consider themselves very much American and not European. Well, the name of the book is Pennsylvania Dutch, the story of an American language. Our guest is Dr. Mark Loudon, University of Wisconsin. Dr. Loudon, thank you very much for being with us today. And as I said, I hope that we can have you on the program again. Sounds great. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Dr. Loudon. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, uh, the former U.S. ambassador to the Ukraine will be uh, at Dickinson College uh, in the next day or so. And uh, we want to talk to him on tomorrow's program about what is actually happening in happening in Ukraine right now and about uh, the relationship with Russia and with the United States. That's coming up on the first part of uh, tomorrow's program.